Good morning, Temple Hills Baptist Church. How are y'all doing? I am excited to be with you on this new year to bring God's word to you. Uh, my wife, Leah, wishes she could be here. She wanted to be here to see you all and say hi to you, but she had responsibilities at our church this morning, and so she is there with our two daughters, but I brought my sons, Jack and Knox. They're here uh, with me, and we are excited to be here today to worship the Lord with you. We pray for Temple Hills Baptist Church on a regular basis. We pray for the Lord's work among you. We are grateful to be able to partner in such a glorious and good gospel in PG County, and we're just praying for God to work, to save souls, and to be glorified in PG County and beyond, and we are excited to be partnered in that work with you all. Uh, so I am excited to be here with you and to open God's word. Before we do that, let me go ahead and uh, open us in a brief word of prayer, and then we will dive into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says uh, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, our prayer now is that you would be gracious to us and give us all things. We pray that you would grant the spirit to open our hearts, uh, to open our ears, uh, to receive your word with joy. We pray that you would grant salvation from heaven that you would grant sanctification, that you would cause us through this time today to clutch more dearly to our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, friends, I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. If you're using the Bible that's provided in your seats, you'll find the passage on page 16. I want to encourage you to open there. Uh, so that when I read the entire chapter here in a few moments, you'll be able to follow along and to see what's there. And I want to encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you throughout our time because we're going to be looking often at it this morning. We're obviously diving into one single chapter in a long and important book, but I just want to take a step back real quick and orient you all to the book of Genesis and to what's going on in our chapter. One of the main purposes of the book of Genesis as a whole is to trace God's promise to send an offspring of the woman to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. So if you go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, while God was cursing the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head, crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So what God is promising is that a child will be born from the woman who will crush the serpent and rescue God's people from sin. And from that point forward, Moses begins tracing the line of individuals through whom that Savior would come. If we were studying the whole book, we'd find that the Savior comes from Noah, and then from Noah's descendant, Abraham, and then from Abraham's son, Isaac, and then on from Isaac's son, Jacob, and from Jacob's son, Judah. One of the central purposes of Genesis is to trace the line of people through whom the Savior would come. And another purpose of Genesis is to shed light on who this offspring will be and how he'll go about 
crushing the serpent and rescuing God's people. And the way light is shed on who he is and how he'll rescue is through the various stories that make up Genesis. When I use the word stories, I mean true stories. These things actually happen. These stories point forward to and foreshadow this coming Savior in many different ways. So I want you to think with me. Let's think of some different examples from Genesis. I want you to think of the account of the flood, where we learn that this coming Savior will be like the ark who protects God's people from the coming judgment. Or he'll be like Abraham, who went out and defeated the mighty mighty kings of Mesopotamia to rescue his kinsman Lot, where we learn that this coming Savior will be like a mighty king who will come and rescue his kinsmen from mighty warriors, from a powerful enemy. Or the account of Jacob's vision of the stairway of heaven with angels ascending and descending on it, where we learn that this coming Savior will be the one through whom mankind can meet with God. The stories in Genesis shed light on who the Savior will be and how he'll go about saving his people. This morning, we come to what is one of the most, if not the most, dramatic, emotionally gripping, and theologically profound stories in the entire Old Testament, in the entire Bible. And what happens in Genesis 22 doesn't just shed like a tiny ray of light on this coming Savior. Genesis 22 is like a massive floodlight illuminating significant aspects of who he will be and what he will do. I don't know if we have any Wheel of Fortune fans here. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. You know what it's like, though, if you've seen Wheel of Fortune? There might be a super long puzzle on the board. All the letters are turned over. You can't see what any of the letters are. And you're like, let me get a C. And he's like, ding. We have one C. All right, that's not going to help you solve the puzzle. Let me get a J. Ding. It's one J. You're like, this is a 50-letter puzzle. A C and a J is not going to help me here. Then you're like, let me get an A. And it's like, ding, ding, ding. ding." Right? You get a a bunch of vowels pop up. And you're like, okay, it's really starting to come into picture now what the answer to this puzzle is. Genesis 22 is like that letter that just lights up the board. And it makes the puzzle. Okay, now, now I see who this Savior will be, right? Genesis 22 is going to shed massive light on who this offspring is. After we read it, we'll have a much clearer idea of who this offspring will be and what he's going to do to rescue God's people. So I want want us to go ahead and get to it. I want you to go ahead and follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 22, and then we'll look more closely at it. This is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. There is a lot to consider here. Uh, we could spend time considering what it means that God tests his people. And we could spend time considering how we should respond to his testing. You, you look at the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews focuses on the fact that Abra- how, of how Abraham responded to God's testing and uses him as an example for Christians to following. We could consider how genuine faith results in obvious actions and change of life, but that's not what we're going to do with our time today. Today, we're going to consider one thing. Uh, most people go into the new year and you have resolutions, right? How, how am I going to change today? The focus is on what, what we want to do with ourselves. How am I going to be a better person? What am I going to do differently with my life? And I, I, I wholeheartedly commend that, especially as Christians. We should be striving with all of the strength that God gives us to pursue holiness. But today, we are not going to look at ourselves. Amen. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said, 
for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. When you look at yourself, you're going to find, I'm discouraged with what I see here. Take 10 looks at Christ. See His glory. Be amazed at His beauty and His power. But we're not even going to look at ourselves this morning. We're going to take 100 looks at Christ. Today we're going to consider one thing, one point, the main point of chapter 22. And it's this. God provides a sacrificial lamb who dies so that His people can live. God provides a sacrificial lamb who dies so that his people can live. We're going to stare at the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and and beauty, and we're going to be amazed at his glory. We're going to see that there is nothing for us to do today in that we are just going to look at him and what God has done. We're going to behold the love of God the Father the love of God the Son, and the love of God the Holy Spirit for a sinful people, and how God pours out His love on us to redeem us from sin and set us free for His glorious purposes. So if you're coming in here today thinking to yourself, what do I need to do, John? What do I need to do in response to this? You need to sit and be amazed at what God has done for you. Genesis 22 is not primarily about how we need to be prepared for testing, or how we need to be prepared to obey really difficult commands, or how we need to sacrifice even what's most dear to us in order to follow God. Those are other sermons you could preach from Genesis 22. The sermon I'm preaching today is about how God, what God has primarily done for us. And what He has done for us, according to Genesis 22, is provide a sacrificial lamb who dies so that we can live. So let's go ahead and walk through the passage again. I'm going to unpack what's going on here and how it prepares us for the promised offspring and Messiah. So go ahead and look with me back at the passage at verse 1. Verse 1 begins, after these things. You might ask, after what things? Right? We're just diving into Genesis 22, so we haven't seen what just happened. It's after the events of chapter 21. So after the birth and weaning of Isaac. After the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, and after the covenant with Abimelech, we read that God tested Abraham. The fact that God is testing Abraham is monumentally important in understanding everything that follows. When we encounter the shocking command that God gives Abraham, a common response is to recoil in horror. But right from the outset, Moses wants us to know that what we're about to encounter is a test. And the fact that it's a test signals for us that God is up to something here, and it's likely he has something else in mind than Abraham following through on this shocking command. And what is that shocking command with which God tests Abraham? Look at verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. When you read the Bible, you you have to let the enormity of that command sink in. Even though we know this is a test, Abraham doesn't know this is a test. Nobody came to Abraham ahead of time and said, hey, the command that God is about to give you is a test. Don't worry, he's not going to actually make you follow through on it, right? We're given information that Abraham didn't have, and the force of this command would have fallen on him like a ton of bricks, would have struck him like a bolt of lightning. 
We even gather from the text itself that God wants us to feel the enormity of it. Look at how he opens the command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Right? It's as though he is already turning the knife in Abraham's heart. Right? Can, can you imagine what it would have been like to receive that command from God? You want me to do what? After all these years of waiting, Abraham has been waiting decades for this child, this promised child. After all these years of waiting, after all of the longing and all of the heartache, after all of these years, you finally gave us a child you promised, and now you want me to do what with him? How could you command me to do such a thing? We imagine that's what it's like for Abraham, but, but here's the thing. We don't need to imagine how Abraham responded. Moses tells us how he responded. Abraham obeys. He obeys God. Look at verse 3. He rose early the next morning, made preparations, went to the land of Moriah. As shocking as God's command is, we also have to acknowledge how shocking Abraham's response is. This is what you might call unflinching obedience. Yes, I will do it. He does what God told him to do. In verse 4, we see that on the third day, Abraham could see the place from a distance. That description should get our attention that something significant is about to go down because throughout Scripture, the third day is often associated with significant acts of redemption. You think of Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale. You think of Jesus spent three days in a tomb, right? The third day is significant because it signals that something Uh, related to this plan of redemption is about to go down. But it's not just Abraham's obedience that Moses wants us to be wowed by. It's also his faith. Look at what he says in verse 5. After they arrive at the mountain, he tells his servants to stay with the donkeys and says to them, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. All of the verbs are in the first person plural. We will go. We will worship. We will come back. Abraham is so confident in God's purposes that he tells his servants, we are coming back to you. And I I don't think he's lying. You turn to the New Testament and the author of Hebrews says about this whole scene that Abraham was so confident in God's promises to him that he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead if he needed to. And in just a moment, we'll see that this isn't the only thing he says That displays his faith. But before we do, look with me at verses 6 and 7. It's impossible to meditate on these two verses without coming absolutely undone. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. His beloved son will carry the wood wood on which he'll be shortly sacrificed. Then in verse 7, the most gut-wrenching line in the entire episode, Isaac asks, Father, we have the fire and the wood, But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Does he know? Is he starting to put the pieces together? Does he he realize what's about to happen? We don't know. But notice what Abraham says in verse 8. God, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I don't know how he will do it or, or when he will do it, but I know he will do it. 
I have doubted him in these past 25 years on different occasions, but he's always provided, and I know he will provide now. And then they arrive. The time has come. And again, we're confronted by Abraham's obedience. He doesn't delay. Look at verse 9. No pacing around, no wringing of the hands, no pleading for a different path. He simply builds the altar, uh, uh, builds the altar he lays the wood, he binds, his, uh, binds Isaac, his son, he lays him on the altar, he reaches out his hand, he takes a knife, he lifts a knife to sacrifice his son. It's like the camera zooms in on his hand, you can see the knuckles whiten as he grips the knife, he's getting ready to do it, and then, Abraham, stop! I mean, you're just like, praise the Lord! Right, if you're watching this on TV, what do they do, right? The knife lifts up, he, you see him gripping it, it's about to come down, and then cut to commercial. And you're like sitting there panting like, what is about to happen? Don't do this to me. And then it comes back from commercial, and it's like, Abraham, stop. And you're like, yes, yes, praise the Lord. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham has passed the test. He looks up, and what does he see? He sees that his word of assurance to Isaac that God would provide has come true. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham offered the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son, in the place of his son, as a substitute for his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The ram dies. Isaac lives. God provides. Then in verses 15 to 24, God speaks to Abraham again. Look at verse 16. By myself, I swear, declares the Lord. Like that, that is what I'm about to say. I'm saying with the utmost seriousness and certainty, right? When, when humans swear an oath, we swear by something greater than ourselves or other than, I swear on my mom's life or I swear on you know, my dog's life or I swear on my job, right? We swear on something other than ourselves because we need something greater than ourselves to prove that what we're saying is true. By myself, says the Lord, I swear. I will do this for you, right? There is none greater than me because I am the Lord. I swear by myself because you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you because you have obeyed me and passed the test. All of the promises I have made to you will absolutely come true. We have to recognize here, Genesis 22, we are 11 chapters into the Abraham story that began in chapter 12. And on three different important occasions, God makes magnificent promises to Abraham. At the beginning of chapter 12, then again in uh, chapter 15, and then again in chapter 17. And each time, he, he confirms his promises with an oath, right? And he promises to bless Abraham. I will make you great. Kings will come from you. Nations will be blessed because he has all these. Your offspring will be greater than the stars of heaven. I will give you this land. He has all these promises. But here, uh, this final act where Abraham has passed the test, God confirms these promises a final time, Right? He reiterates all of the promises he's made already. In verse 17, Abraham will have many descendants. In verse 18, his offspring will bring blessing to the nations. But what is different about these promises in Genesis 22 is that there is a new promise about this coming offspring. Look at the second half of verse 17. Your offspring 
shall possess the gate of his enemies. The promised offspring who will crush the serpent and bring the blessing of salvation to every nation on earth will wage war against his enemies and be victorious. He will possess their gates, right? You come to a city in the ancient world and the city is protected by a wall and gates. And then the armed soldiers would protect that gate because if that gate got taken, the whole city got taken. This coming offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. He will be victorious over them. And in the final verses of the chapter, we're then introduced to Rebecca, who will become Isaac's wife and the one through whom this offspring would be born. I think if we're going to truly appreciate the full weight of this chapter, we have to first read this chapter through the eyes of an Israelite. It's easy for us to read the Old Testament and think, okay, what does this mean for me? But if you're going to rightly understand what the Old Testament means for you, you have to first understand what it meant for an Israelite and the nation of Israelites. Their entire existence as a people depended on Isaac living. Isaac, after all, is the child of promise. He is the one through whom the promise of numerous descendants will come to pass. The one through whom these numerous descendants would become the nation of Israel. Israel's existence is completely dependent on Isaac living. If Isaac doesn't live, there won't be numerous descendants. If there's no numerous descendants, there's no Israel. If Isaac dies, then Israel dies before they've ever lived. They would have heard this story as though it was them being loaded with wood, as though it was them being led up the mountain. They would have heard this story as though it was them who watched Abraham build the altar, as though it was them who was bound, as though it was them who was laid across the wood, utterly helpless as they watched the knife lift overhead. And they would have shouted for joy when they heard those same sweet words from heaven, Abraham, stop! You can imagine the people of Israel, even though they know the ending of the story, shouting for joy when God stopped Abraham and shouting for joy when God provided the lamb, right? You ever seen a movie that you've seen multiple times, but when it comes to the climax of the movie, you're just always like, yeah, whatever that movie is for you. And your friends are like, you've seen this before. Why are you so excited? Because this movie's bomb. Like this is, this is amazing what is going on here. When Israel would have heard this story, they would have had the same response. Isaac lives. Isaac lives. We live. The lamb died so that Isaac could live. But the lamb didn't die so that just Isaac could live. The lamb died so that Israel could live. Their entire existence depended on the death of the lamb. But it wasn't just this story that taught them their life depended on the death of the lamb. Their entire existence taught them that. Think about the Israelites in Egypt here in this story for the first time. What would they have thought? When God sent the angel of death to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, what protected the Israelites from the same judgment? The blood of the lamb. Nothing but the blood of the lamb. Nothing but the blood of the lamb separated Israel from Egypt. Because the Passover lamb died, they lived. Then when God brought them out of Egypt and dwelled among them in the tabernacle and later the temple, 
He established the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the people of Israel were to gather at the temple, and the sacrificial lamb was brought forward, and the priests laid their hands on the head of the lamb, symbolizing the transfer of their sins to the lamb who was then sacrificed. The lamb died so that they could live. And then day after day after day and year after year, lambs were offered as burnt offerings and sin offerings to atone for sins and cleanse people of their sins. The lambs died so that the people could live. And in all of this, God was preparing Israel and the world for the long-awaited offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. And what Genesis 22 is teaching us about this offspring is that he would crush the serpent and rescue mankind by becoming a sacrificial lamb who would die so that God's people could live. This is why we should shout for joy Right, when we read what John the Baptist says about Jesus in John 1, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him, the Lamb has come. And we should shout for joy today because Isaac is a picture of every one of us. We were bound by the power of sin. Utterly helpless to free ourselves from sin's dominion and power in our lives. Worse than that, we freely gave ourselves to sin. We rejected God and rejected His purposes. And because of that, we were under His judgment. The knife of God's judgment rightly hung over our heads. We were condemned as sinners and destined for death and hell. But before that divine blade fell on us, the Lord Jesus cried out, Stop! Do not lay a hand on them! I have come to bear their sins away. I have come to take their place. I have come to offer my life for theirs. I have come to die so that they might live. On the cross, the Lamb of God died so that God's people could live. You even see in the passage, though, how Isaac is not only a picture of us, but of Christ. This passage, when you turn it around, it's like a diamond. You just look at every different angle and it just explodes with glory and beauty just showing us all of God's majesty, all of God's work just piled together in this one person, Christ. Isaac's not only a picture of us, but of Christ. I'm confident that when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke and told them that all of the Old Testament was ultimately about him, when he came to Genesis 22, he stopped and he was like, I am about to blow your mind. Even in the passage, Isaac isn't just a picture of us, but of Christ. Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah. What is Mount Moriah? The next place we find Mount Moriah in the Old Testament, it is where the temple is built. God provides a lamb who dies as a substitute in the same place he would later dwell with mankind on earth. Moriah is later called Jerusalem, the city where... Jesus Christ was crucified. Just as Isaac carried the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah, so Jesus ascends the mount in Jerusalem carrying the wood of his own cross to die as the Lamb God provided so that God's people could live. And it's not just Isaac carrying wood up the mountain that foreshadows Jesus' death on the cross. It's also Isaac's deafening silence. For him to carry wood up a hill or a mountain he would have to be, at least be a teenager by this point. 
which means Abraham is well over 100 years. Got any teenage boys in this room? Could you beat your pops up? Maybe not, because he's probably 40, 30, something like that. What if he was 100? Yeah, you could beat him up. You could take him, no, no problem, right? If Isaac wanted to put up a fight, he could have put up a fight, but there's no fighting. There's no screaming. There's no trying to get away. He's silently bound, silently laid on the wood, silently preparing to be sacrificed. He doesn't even cry out when the knife is lifted overhead. In his silence, he's preparing us for the Lord Jesus, who Isaiah predicted would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The true lamb of God and true Isaac went silently to the cross because he went willingly to the cross. It is why he came. He came to save sinners. And he came to save sinners by dying so that spiritually dead sinners could live, so that bound sinners could be set free, and with our free and living tongues proclaim with the loudest of possible voices, God provides. On the mount of the Lord it has been provided. And I want you to think with me about what made Jesus' death on our behalf effective. What gave his death on our behalf power? What gave his death power was his obedience. And here we see how not only Isaac and the lamb foreshadowed Jesus, but how Abraham foreshadows Jesus, right? If you are going to foreshadow Jesus, you're going to need a lot of different people because you can't just have one person who perfectly sums up all that Jesus would do. Abraham foreshadows Jesus. At this point in Genesis, Abraham's failings and his sins have been well documented. He failed in chapter 12. He failed in chapter 16. He fails in chapter 20. Abraham was made righteous by faith alone. But the emphasis here in Genesis 22 is on Abraham's obedience. He does all that God calls him to do, and he does it without hesitating. He unflinchingly is committed to accomplishing the mission God gives him, and even as he approaches a place where he was told to sacrifice Isaac, he confidently declares that he and Isaac will return and that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And though he was justified by faith, God says twice in verses 15 and 18, the reason that all of his promises are guaranteed to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring is because he obeyed. He passed the test and in doing so secured God's promises for all of God's people. And in all of this, he foreshadows the truly obedient one, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't pass some tests and not others. Jesus didn't obey sometimes and not others. He obeyed at all times. Even when he was tested in by Satan in the wilderness, he passed with flying colors and remained unflinchingly committed to obeying the mission God had given him to the very end. Amen. Not the mission of sacrificing someone else, but the mission of laying down his own life on the cross. Well, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And just as Abraham expressed his confidence that God would provide as he approached the place where he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, so Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem and the place where he would be crucified, confidently told his disciples, I will suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. They will kill me, 
but on the third day, I will rise again. And because Jesus obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has guaranteed that all who trust in him will receive all of the promises of the new covenant. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because my son has obeyed to the point of death, you will be justified through faith. You will be redeemed, forgiven, adopted, set free, made righteous. Because my son has obeyed, you will be sanctified, preserved, kept, and glorified. Because my son has obeyed, eternal life is yours, hope is yours, heaven is yours, and more than that, I am yours. Jesus has secured for now and eternity for all of God's people, all of God's promises in the new covenant, which are primarily God himself. God will be your God, and you will be his people. And as much as you and I might struggle on a daily basis or weekly basis and become discouraged in our faith, that's why we need to take 10 looks at Christ because Jesus says, it is based on my obedience that you are saved. It is based on my faithfulness to God's covenant that you are his children now. You can confidently look to Jesus Christ and say, your righteousness is mine because God has promised that his righteousness is yours in the new covenant. This is the comfort and encouragement and strength that we derive from the gospel. As we sin, we're not supposed to hide ourselves from God and turn away from our sins. We're supposed to look in the mirror, recognize how we've fallen, turn to the cross and say, because of what Jesus has done, confirm for me your promises. Encourage me in the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. Because of Jesus' obedience, you can be sure that God will keep every single one of his promises to you. And none of this will be taken from you throughout the course of your life because Jesus has destroyed the gates of his enemies. Think about the promise. Abraham's offspring will possess the gates of his enemies. And Jesus has fulfilled that promise. He has defeated sin and death and Satan and hell. Because the lamb has died, you will live. This is why Jesus told his disciples in the New Testament, the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Do you know who I am? I'm the lamb of God. I am the king of kings. No gates will prevail against me. I'm going to storm the gates of hell. You're coming with me and we're going to be victorious. His offspring will possess the gates of his enemies. And it's here that we cannot miss that Genesis 22 doesn't just teach us about what Jesus has done for us. It teaches us about the depth of the Father's love for us. The horror we feel in response to God's command to Abraham, the gut-wrenching anguish we feel as they climb the mountain together, the shock of it all is overwhelming. And yet the horror and the anguish And the shock of the scene should transform into absolute astonishment, amazement, and awe. Because in his command to Abraham, God was preparing the world for what he would do to save us from sin. Why do you think God repeats himself stressing that Abraham is to offer his son, his only son, the son he loves? Three different times God stresses that Abraham is to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. He wants us to see that this is what he did to save us. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The agony we feel when we read this chapter should turn to astonishment because Genesis 22 is foreshadowing for us the love of God the Father for sinners like you and me. The Father, out of the immensity of his love for sinners, out of the immensity of his love for you, gave his Son, his only Son, whom he loves to die so that you and I could live. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. I think so often Christians make the mistake of looking at Jesus and seeing, sweet Jesus, dear Jesus, protect me from the Father because he is the angry one. But Michael Reeves says in his book, Treasuring Christ, he says, there is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. The Father and the Son are one. The love of Jesus Christ is the pouring out, the embodiment of the love of Father, the love of the Father for sinners like you and me. This is the good news of the gospel. We were bound in sin, enslaved to sin, couldn't free ourselves from sin. In fact, we gave ourselves to it, but God loved us so much that he put forward his son, the Lamb of God, as the substitutionary and atoning sacrifice. He put Jesus forward to die in our place. So that if we trust in him, we would be completely forgiven of our sins and guaranteed eternal life. Friend, I don't don't know many people in this room. I don't know if you are a Christian or not. But if you're here and you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I just want to appeal to you to consider God's love for you in the gospel and in what he's done through Jesus. He gave his son to die on the cross to bear the full punishment that you and I deserve all the ways that we've rejected God, for all the ways that we've sinned, for all the ways that we've treated other people poorly, and just lived as though God doesn't exist. God pursues sinners, pursues us so much that he sent his son to die for us, and Jesus died so that we could live, and he didn't stay dead. Just as Abraham returned from the mountain with Isaac, so Jesus got up from the dead, proving that God accepted his sacrifice. He put Jesus forward so that if all of us would put our trust in him for salvation, we would be able to say, because the Lamb of God died, I will live. That is the central message of this chapter for you and me today. There are other important things that we need to think about in this chapter, and you can think about it other times. But we need to think about today is that main point. Because the lamb has died, we can live. God has provided the sacrificial, the sacrificial lamb. God has given his son. So if you're asking today, what must I do to be saved? God's answer to you is simple. Look to the lamb. Look to the lamb of God whom I have put forward to die in your place. Look to the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Trust in my provision of the Lamb. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Because the Lamb died, you can live. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all glory and honor and power. Heading into 2023, my encouragement to you is to rest in Jesus. Because Jesus died, we will live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are 
it, it's impossible to, to grasp the, the breadth and length and height of depth and depth of your love for us in Christ, but we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand it more. Lord, give us eyes to see your work through Jesus. Teach us to trust in him and to rest in him today and in the days to come. And we pray that your gospel would ripple throughout PG County and beyond, that many would see that you have provided the lamb, the lamb who died so that we could live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may stand.